0: You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today, we're bringing you an episode from Icons, where listeners are introduced to incredible people working within the law enforcement community who have made a profound impact in our world. These one on one interviews provide insight into their lives and careers so we can better understand their challenges and recognize their bravery, commitment, and sacrifice. On this episode of Icons, Thomas is joined by Ganesha Martin, a public safety and community relations advocate. Ganesha quickly rose to prominence in the Baltimore City Police Department through the mayor's office and went on to develop strategies and procedures to improve relationships between public safety and communities through a variety of strategies and legislative plans. From these successes, she has received numerous accolades, including IACP's 40 Under 40 and was selected to travel to Nairobi, Kenya to share community policing strategies during the convening on civilian police reform by Open Societies Foundation. Ganesha's thoughts on women in leadership, if they were put in positions to affect and influence culture, we would be in a place where we would have more trust with our community. And now for Icons, featuring Ganesha Martin, center of the wheel.
1: Thank you so much, Ganesha, for being here with us today. It is a really great opportunity for us to have a chance to sit down and talk and share more about your story and your experience working within law enforcement.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm so happy that you're doing something like this because so often folks want to hear um, about some of the things that just don't can't get captured in sound bites, so super excited to be here with you.
1: Good, good. Um, well, thank you. And I wanted to start uh I had a moment. I was at home a couple of weeks ago and I was watching the HBO series, We Own the City, and you know, I'm like I like the show and I'm familiar with Baltimore, you know, so I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, and then all of a sudden I hear a character refer to Ganesha Martin. <laughs> yeah. And I press pause and I rewound it. And I was like, I think I just heard the name of the person that I'm going to be interviewing in a couple of weeks. And so I played it again. And sure enough, he said, Ganesha Martin. So I know there's a story there. Um, and it was you, correct? Yeah, right? it was.
2: It was. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's funny, too. I just remembered this, that, you know, um, it was an event here at the museum and um, I introduced myself uh, to, uh, you know, a couple of I think it was officers from California. Um and they they were like Baltimore we own the city are you in we own this city and so then like as soon as I said they wanted to take pictures and all this sort of stuff so um yeah and I was getting a lot of text you know when when folks were were seeing it they were like you're famous and I was yeah. like I, I don't know that it's famous uh-huh. but yeah <laughs> um
1: all right well we're gonna get into that uh, a little bit later but before we do I wanted to learn just a little bit more about um your background where you came from you know anything about uh your childhood that. That, that might have uh, led you in, in the direction you're you're in today.
2: Yeah, so I don't know what this means, but yesterday um, a friend of mine sent me a phone number of this the, this guy we're trying to get in contact with the new AG of, of Maryland. And um, I, I, I saw that the guy's name was, I mean, that he had a 317 area code. Um, and uh, I said, Indy, my hometown. And she's like, how many hometowns do you have? So I was like, born in Indianapolis, raised in Dallas, Texas, um and then um practiced law in new mexico uh and then by way of new mexico came to dc and ended up working in baltimore so i really do take like all of those experiences um it, then and apply them at some point in policing across the country but i if, if i had to say something that was um pivotal in my life uh, as a child um uh, that affects me now is i've always been taller uh than most kids um, and there was just something in me where I didn't like bullies. Um, and so anytime I saw another kid picking on another kid, um, I generally was bigger than the kid that was picking on that. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I would kind of intervene. That's kind of how I ended up becoming a lawyer. And even in policing, um, it, it's a big it's a big part of the
1: work that I do. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, I have not been to Texas, uh, but I know a lot of people from Texas uh-huh. and they believe Texas is. Like the best place on earth
2: i have to look i mean you know maybe over a drink we'll talk about the things that texas could improve upon there are some things but i'll tell you you are raised with this pride that we do it bigger we do it better yeah um in texas so yeah. and it de- it doesn't go away i just stopped using my texas license plate which is i think illegal <laughs> um just a couple of years ago because uh-huh. i wanted to always claim the the lone star state
1: um let's talk about becoming a lawyer um were you initially accepted into the the school that you were interested in? What was, what was the process, uh, uh, of uh, applying to schools? Which schools were you interested in? Uh, what was that experience like?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. So I, um, the, in my, in my family, um, it was always just pushed. You're going to college, you're going to college. Um, but there was not a lot of background on which college, like, you know, um, going on school visits and oh what's the culture and all this just you know in my family it was just get to college mm-hmm. um and so um i really didn't think about it and i just um you know said well i think you know i can make a lot of money if i get into an ivy league school so i mean that was really the the basis of it so i didn't apply to any quote-unquote safe schools mm. um i applied to all um your top schools and i was going through a lot at the time um so uh, probably didn't have the best application but mm. um i was working um at a law firm and and the uh the the head lawyer said you know give me all the stuff that you sent to the Ivy Leagues. So I think I'd gotten rejected like twice. Mm-hmm. Um and to Harvard if you're listening. Uh <laughs> Funny story by the way. I took my little sister right after that rejection to see um she wanted to see legally blonde yeah. and I was so just pissed <laughs> watching her get into college, uh, you know, with the bikini or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so um So um yeah. So he took all my stuff and he was on the board of regents in um, at Texas Tech uh, and he gave him all that, all the stuff. And then I got a call two weeks later from the dean asking me if I wanted a full ride wow. uh, to Texas Tech law school. So um, my brother's running track there um, mm. and I ended up going down to, to Texas Tech.
1: So where'd you go? To, where'd you do your undergrad? Baylor. Is that in Texas? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, so forgive me. Texans. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. I slapped him on
2: behalf of all Texans.
1: <laughs> um, and so what was your experience like in law school? Was it kind of a natural fit? Did you feel like I'm, this is where I belong. And, uh, and this is what I want to do. Oh
2: gosh, get out of my head and my emotions. No, (laughs) you know, I was an I was a straight A student. Um, most of my life, just because again, I didn't grow up with a lot. So my, my idea was education was going to get me Mm -hmm. to the place that I needed to go. Um, and so I thought, Hey, if I just work hard and study hard in law school, the same thing would happen. Mm -hmm. But, um, it's not it's not what you know necessarily it's how you apply what you know in law school so it's like how do you think about stuff plus it's this system where um oh I'm forgetting the name but either way um it 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 causes a lot of stress and pressure I remember one time being in one of my classes and all of a sudden you hear this boom and like I looked down the line, and like somebody had fainted, like just the stress oh <laughs> of getting called on, yeah. um, and uh, and you know you're judged um, based upon you know not like an A to a you know a 100 to a 90 is an A, like you're 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 it's based upon like the, the a bell curve or a curve. it's like, you're just like mm. who. You know, you got to step on that other person Mm -hmm. um, for you to. And so it was it was really, really it was really difficult uh, for me. Socially, I was like, fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But even though it was Texas where I mean, it was Lubbock, Texas, which, by the way, um, Tumbleweed. Is real. <laughs> it's not just in <laughs> cartoons. It's not just in Bugs Bunny. Yeah. There, they, it was there. Um, I got caught under my car all the time. So, um, but I just kept studying and and, and persevered. And then there, there's a joke in law school that the the A's work for the B's, and the B's
1: mm. work for the people who made C's. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> right, right. What? Um, so reflecting back, um I like to take a little time uh, to talk about areas that. Um, people who are listening might be interested in, you Mm -hmm. know, so, um, you know, looking at the trajectory of your career and the things that, that you've been a part of um, is there anything in law school that you would have done differently? Uh, Are there, uh, you know, moments where um, you would have focused on one thing and not the other or gone in a completely different direction?
2: Well, there's a couple of things that stuck with me through law school. One was an issue of equity um and and uh you could clearly see the people who had lawyers or judges in their families mm. um did could do better um in just acclimating um the other thing um that um I probably would have done different. So I studied Japanese in in Japan for a year in undergrad. Mm -hmm. So I plan on being a corporate lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of classes um, that I thought would take me there. Um, And if I would have ended up being a corporate lawyer, I would have been very unhappy Mm -hmm. um, because I am not a kind of, no offense to you guys, but no paper pusher or that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so what I tell most people who ask me about law school now First of all, I say I only recommend law school to people I don't like, Mm. (laughs) but but if you're going to go, then make sure you do a lot of internships or talk Mm. to people in the field that you think you want to be in. I also decided I might want to be a a divorce lawyer after I got out Mm. um, because my parents were divorced. That was way too emotional for me. I was Mm. way too connected to it. So I just always say talk to um, a lot of different lawyers to see what their actual actual day in the life is. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. Yeah. yeah. Um, So then what was the work you were initially doing uh, after law school? You said New Mexico?
2: Yeah. So I started practicing in Texas. um, And the firm that I worked for in Texas, I wanted to expand into New Mexico, civil litigation. Um, um, It was a plaintiff's CERN. So um, juries were, were much more, progressive and open uh in new mexico so went out there to open our branch office in albuquerque uh, and then eventually took over another branch in las cruces um and so i ran both of those uh, branches of our our law firm um for um about six years
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: so so the firm wanted to expand into that area because why
2: Um, Because of tort reform. So tort reform in Texas, um, literally, you could, you know, I always give this example, you could have a doctor walk in high on coke, take your heart out when he was supposed to, you know, operate on your toe. And Mm. the most a family was going to get was $250,000 period, Mm. you know, that sort of thing. So, Mm. um, so Texas was very conservative about um, civil litigation. And so this firm wanted to expand into a place where juries were not as conservative um, and would give uh, larger verdicts. And mm-hmm. so uh, New Mexico, particularly Albuquerque, is mm-hmm. um, very progressive in that way. And uh, Santa Fe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then if, if you were in Texas, you were still bound by... Those rules, Mm -hmm. right? Or those limitations. Yeah. Right. But this just opened another opportunity.
2: Yeah. Because when you go to, so when you're looking at, at legal cases, you first of all want to look at the law, and and the laws usually are passed by the legislature, which you know re- usually reflect whether it's conservative or you know progressive or whatever it is. So that's what's going to apply in court um, a, a lot of times. And then um, your, your juries, what are your juries going to look like? The mm-hmm. voting folks there. So you're going to pull a certain jury pool in Texas, and you're going to pull a certain jury pool in uh, Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And for the type of law we were working on, um, Albuquerque and Santa Fe um, were just um, much more. Uh, you were gonna, you were, you're gonna get more for your clients mm-hmm. um, yeah. in those jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so then, what brought you from there to D.C. or to Baltimore?
2: Yeah, so I um, really was missing the city, um, New Mexico. Um, it was is very, um, I always say manana, manana, like there is no rush, mm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and so I'm kind of like a fast paced person. Mm-hmm. Um, I really loved it, though. It slowed me down. I love the mountains, good food, but I was ready to get back to a city. Mm-hmm. My brother was in D.C., so mm-hmm. um, I had saved up enough money to not have to work for a year. I was kind of thinking about a different type of area of law that I wanted to go into, looking at public interest law, international law, that sort of thing. Um, And it was quite random, if you will. My godmother um, gave me the cards of several um, attorneys that she met at a party. And the first attorney that I called was um, at a boutique firm in Baltimore. Mm. Uh, So my first time I went to Baltimore, I met her for coffee Mm -hmm. and we're sitting there um, having coffee and somebody walks in um, and uh, they're talking about the inauguration of the mayor the night before. I have no idea who they're talking about. Completely brand new to Baltimore. Uh, and this guy looks at me and he's like, you know, he asked me a little bit about myself and he's like, I think you should work for the mayor. And I'm like, uh, I don't know the mayor. I'm going to Italy. Uh, like I'll see you guys when I get back. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, I think you'd be perfect for this role. So, uh, long, long story short, that's how I ended up in wow. Baltimore <laughs> Yeah.
1: What were your first impressions of Baltimore.
2: Um, you know what? People say that um Baltimore is like a northern, southern city. Mm-hmm. And it's very true. Um, I always say I live a bi coastal life between DC and and Baltimore. Um and so <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. And yeah, so you the people are just uh very open uh and um I don't know, they always keep you laughing. One of the things that I I thought about um was um, the ma- the mayor? I asked her, "What what is Charm City like? What does that mean?" And she mm-hmm. goes, "Oh, you'll figure out." Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to describe, but it is something that you'll figure out. The other thing I say about Baltimore is like where I grew up. Um, like I saw real, real problems. Mm-hmm. Like where where I grew up, people didn't talk about murder every day. Mm-hmm. Um, the poverty was not, um, um, you know, you go into schools and you can't drink the water because of lead poisoning. Mm Uh, and I, there are many times in Baltimore city where I was like, are we really in America? Like, I didn't even know food deserts. I never even heard of food deserts. Um, so it's one of those things where I love Baltimore because I think it's beautiful and resilient. Um, but at the same time, um, it, it has had a lot of disinvestment. Um, and a lot of neglect. Um, and so there's a lot of pain there as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Where Did you live in Baltimore when you we worked there or live in that area?
2: No, I commuted every day. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: Um, I lived there for a year in uh, Mount Vernon. and uh, That's a
2: cool place. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cool
1: place to live. Yeah, it's a great city. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited that a lot of our conversation today uh, will be uh, about Baltimore and your role there. So what was your first role
2: so my first role um, was special assistant, actually. And I, you Google that and it'll tell you a million things. It it, it really depends. But so for me, um, it ended up being like literally the best job of my life because um, what would happen is the mayor's EPU. So, you know, her protection unit mm-hmm. uh, would pick me up in the black SUV. We go pick her up. Um, and then I would be with her from the morning till we dropped her off. So if we were going to a homicide scene, we were going to a sinkhole. We were going to an opening of a new school. We were going to the groundbreaking of, you know, a senior citizen's home. We were meeting, you know, uh, coming up to D.C. to to uh, meet with, um, you know, President Obama or Nancy Pelosi or, you know, Sen- uh, Congressman Cummings, um, or we were dealing with a, um Johns Hopkins president or, you know, for a person who was brand new to Baltimore, mm-hmm. um, I got to meet and yeah. and greet and uh, like everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was it was great. It was a great experience for me. It was really hard for me to leave that that role. But um, I was uh, they were paying me what I used to pay in taxes mm, <laughs> as right. a lawyer. Yeah. So yeah. I that luckily I had that money um that I'd saved up but uh, eventually I took the bar uh so that I could practice law in Maryland
1: I had at every intention to to be a lawyer uh in Maryland um and is that what happened next how did where did you go after the the special assistant
2: position? Yeah so I um I studied for the bar um in Maryland and I passed it and um as I began to look for um jobs um I was offered the opportunity to be assistant deputy mayor of public safety and emergency management where I oversaw six agencies, one of which was police. Um, And (laughs) speaking of um, TV shows, um, I decided having not been from Baltimore that I was going to watch the wire Mm -hmm. um, to help me get prepared for my new role as assistant deputy mayor. That was a bad decision. (laughs) (laughs) It was like a bad decision. (laughs) Yeah. The first episode, the IA lieutenant, you know, came on the scene where they blinded a 14 year old. Everybody was lying.
1: Like, I was just like, okay, I can't, I I can't watch this. (laughs) No, no. no. Um, so let's, uh, I want to talk about the Bureau of community affairs. Can you talk more about that project? Yeah.
2: So, um, when I first, um, was, so I was assistant deputy mayor of public safety, Um, And then during that time, um, the mayor brought in a police commissioner from California. Um, And so at that time, um, about a year into his tenure, I was asked to go over to be his chief of staff. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went over to the police department to be the chief of staff. So this is my first entree into policing from the inside. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were really focused on proactive reforms. Um, And so I was doing that work. um, And then 2015 came. We started seeing Ferguson, all of the um, all of the uh, protests across the country. um, And our Maryland uh, uh, General Assembly um, said that they were going to pass police reform legislation. And so the commissioner asked me to go up and make sure that anything that was passed was actually helpful, not harmful. um, And it was there that I was able to engage with a lot of activists. And I told the commissioner, I said, the community doesn't dislike the police. They hate the police. Um, and so as the chief of staff, when I come back after legislative session, I can't just focus uh, on all the fires that are happening in the police department. I need to focus on this relationship with the community and police. And so um, I was granted the uh, permission to create this new Bureau of Community Engagement, where my focus was going to be on uh, the relationship between police and community. I also oversaw legislative affairs, and then I oversaw uh, media relations um, along with that. Um, and um, um, once I got permission for that to happen, Freddie Gray died the next day.
1: Um I'm gonna go back for one second. When you referred to the legislative reforms, was that specific to Baltimore or Maryland as a state? And yeah, I'll
2: yeah, um, Maryland as a state, um, but Baltimore is always the focus. Um And at that particular time, they were focusing on um, the law enforcement officer's bill of rights, mm-hmm. um, which uh, is a very strong law that protected police in a lot of different ways. Um, and Maryland had the oldest um, and the strongest in the country. Um, and so that legislative session, they were focused on dismantling that. Um, so that they could get access to police personnel records, disciplinary records, all these different sorts of things. They lost um, that battle, that legislative session, but they just won um, that um, last session or two sessions ago. They they were able to dismantle hmm. the law enforcement officers' bill of rights.
1: Did they put anything in its place, Any another version?
2: So that's kind of a, a controversy, if you will, right now. Um, they're still working um mm. to put something in place. Um and uh some folks fear that um, you know, that gap uh has left it open for people to kind of fill mm-hmm. it however they want to. Right. Um and so um but yeah, they're still kind of putting things together uh right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, mm. um so with the Bureau of Community Engagement, uh, how does a, a bureau take place uh, kind of within uh, the hierarchy of, you know, city agencies or departments um, where you granted a budget? You know, how does how does that take shape? Mm-hmm. So um, this was a bureau within the
2: police department. So okay. the way the police department, at least in Baltimore, was set up is that you had the commissioner as the top person. And then you had three de- deputy commissioners and then you had. Um, the equivalent of a colonel or a chief, uh, you know, which is what I was. Um, And um, so you just get essentially permission from the commissioner to create a new bureau, um, which I did um, and started working towards staffing um, that bureau. But with um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but with the death of Freddie Gray, everything changed. Um, and so then my efforts were, um, focused, um, elsewhere, but, um, but yeah, when you're in general, when you're trying to build something new in the police department, um, if it was, if it was a agency, you'd have to get the city council, um, mm-hmm. to, to pass it actually in Maryland, you would have had to get the legislator to pass it because until recently, uh, it was just voted, um, during this last election, um, Baltimore city, was um still a um an agency of the state mm. this goes back his- back to uh, history where there were kind of these political coups mm-hmm. um and they put the police department underneath the state so that the the police department couldn't help um unseat the mayor um mm. you know mm. uh all this all this time ago in history but anyway so now it's it's under the uh it's under um city control again um, and so, yeah, you, then you would ask for a budget, um, you would then have to create positions, which can be very painful mm-hmm. in government. Mm-hmm. Then you have to get those positions right. funded and put it out. And, um, sometimes you would, you know, um, hire from within, um, with police officers or civilians. And then, uh, you, then you would be able to get some positions that would come in from the outside.
1: And it would be staffed by police officers. Um, for, for the Bureau
2: of, before the, for the Bureau of community (laughs) engagement, I would want both. Mm -hmm. I would want some police officers, but then I would also want some civilians. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: is that, uh, I know things got, uh, redirected after the death of Freddie Gray, but is that. Um, department still exists
2: it does oh good Mm -hmm. it doesn't uh exist in the exact same format Mm -hmm. but it does exist it became part of the consent decree which um, we'll talk about a little bit later but
1: okay uh was there any models that you were looking at for as you were designing that or was that your vision how how were you thinking about the bureau of community affairs
2: yeah what i really did was i went to the police and said what do you need Mm. Um, I also went to the community and said, what do you need? Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the things that, you know, I found to be important is that first of all, you have to have it written down. What is your plan? One of the things that happens in police departments across the country still does is you get a community engagement um, office. There's like five officers. They do all the community engagement work. Um, The community loves them. And then, the rest of the officers, you know, don't have that good relationship because they feel like it's up to the those that small group of people. No mm. community engagement and community um, policing, which I don't really like that term uh, is for everybody. So I'll give you perfect example. So like if you have a homicide scene um, and you have the tape up and people are coming home, coming home. Mm. Right. You know how you treat them when you tell them. Ma'am, if you don't mind, if you'll give us maybe 30 more minutes, the ambulance is on uh, the way and blah, blah, blah versus back up. Mm-hmm. Get in your place. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's 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 just two different, you know, environments. And so um, and and one of the things I always say is, OK, if you were that that rude officer at the homicide scene, when the detectives come back, to ask that community member, what did mm, you see? Right. They're not opening the door. They're mm. shutting the door in your face. They may even be cussing you out. Mm. And, and it had nothing to do with that detective. And now that detective can't close a homicide case. Mm. So, you know, commu- so write it down. What is everybody's role in community engagement? And then track it and make sure that everybody's doing what we said we were going to do, both um, police and community. We ended up putting together a community comstat. Um, where the same way you talk about your crime statistics, uh, we talk about our community statistics.
1: Mm. Um, so then it, it was a little bit, sounds like it's a little bit different than it, uh, than engaging members of the community only, but also a training opportunity or learning opportunity for officers themselves.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that, um, at major city chiefs uh twice now um the the annual convening they've had um target wells Fargo um I may be getting the companies wrong, but they've had people there um to talk about customer service mm-hmm. i mean that's literally what you're supposed to be doing um when you're engaging with folks and we've you know had training around procedural justice and all those sorts of things um but yeah the community the from in my opinion the community engagement um, Bureau should be multifaceted. It should have some officers who are focused on on certain um, you know certain problem solving um, issues with the, with the community, maybe events, but every but you should also have training and be able to lead the way um, for everybody in the department to know their role and to make sure that they have what they need to actually um, do the things that we're asking them to do in the plan
1: so in in the uh in the example of an officer kind of getting aggressive with a neighbor somebody coming home from work, where do you think that comes from? Is it a, a frustration that you know it's kind of underlying uh within their work or uh is there just historically um you know that type of interaction?
2: Yeah, I think it's a multitude of things um some sometimes just on your basic level, there are some people who should not have a gun in a badge they just they should they should not um and so but then beyond that um particularly recently but certainly for a while um you have police um districts or police um squads that are going out where they would normally have 24 people 30 people Mm -hmm. they're having four five Mm -hmm. six people so what does that what does that do first of all um you're, you're stressed you're worried if i drop a you know, uh, you know, uh, some uh, a code where I need backup, um, because you know, is is somebody going to be able to come for me? Mm-hmm. Number one, number two, um, you're going call to call to call to call to call. Some you sometimes you don't get to eat. Sometimes you don't get to pee. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and then you know you have um officers being called because you know kids aren't doing their homework. Uh, you know, you, from from like things like that to. You know, somebody's killed a baby, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you're seeing the worst of mm-hmm. people. And just think about this. You're doing this every day. Mm-hmm. Like you get up in the morning to go and and see and and, and see people dying or dead or, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of things like that. And I do not think that as a profession, we've done what we should for um, intervention, um, mental health and wellness interventions. Um, For a very long time, it was a a bad stigma for even asking for help um, because you're supposed to power through it. But you're human. So you can only power through so much. So people turn to alcohol, people turn to drugs um, and those sorts of things. Um, And then, um, you know, going back um, to what you were saying, yes, there is um, uh, which has just come to a crescendo in a lot of places. There is a very tense relationship. There are some places where police pull up and get out of their vehicles. And there's 10, 20 cameras on them. There's people spitting right. at them. Mm-hmm. There's people calling them names. Um, you know, all these sorts of things. And so when you are an officer who might have joined the force to actually, like, do good in your community, and, you know, you're called a racist, you're called all these things, um, and you literally have not done anything. Um, there Maybe somebody else did mm-hmm. something. And that's another piece of it. There are officers that, um, do things, um, that they shouldn't get away with, but they do get away with. Um, and so then that makes good officers, um, you know, leery of the system. Mm -hmm. So you have a whole bunch of dynamics. The other thing that happens in police departments, just like other businesses is, the cool kids versus the not cool kids. Are mm. you cool with the commissioner? Are you cool with mm. the, the assistant yeah, chief? The clicks. Are, the clicks? Mm. are you getting the the prime assignments? Like, do you get to be a homicide detective? Um, you know, are promotions fair? Um, so yeah. you have a, a lot of, of these things. And just like our teachers, police are not paid well, which is just ridiculous. Um, you know, we have folks in our society doing some of the toughest jobs and we're paying them the least amount of money. Um, so you you have all those different things going on, um, and I think they can crop up um, yeah. at at any time.
1: Yeah. So you you know you have all that, and then you know, and then you're talking to them about you know customer service, and I'm sure the eye roll. <laughs>
2: well, you know what's funny? You know. You're absolutely right. Well, you know what's funny too is there was one time where um, I I was going around to the districts uh, in Baltimore, and um, I walked in. Uh, I was, I was talking to the community, uh, at the districts and I walked in and literally there were chairs and like the, with the cushion hanging out, like it looked like a, a bear had like just tore it apart. So I look at the major and I was like, really major you, this is where the police come and sit before roll call, where we want them to be officer friendly. This is where we invite the community. And he looked at me so dejected and he said, ma'am, who would I ask? And that, stuck with me because we ask broken people to Mm -hmm. go help broken people. Mm -hmm. When you do not treat a person, right? You treat them like a widget. You don't take, take care of them with basic stuff. If he would have asked for chairs, he probably would have got ripped. Mm -hmm. Like people are getting murdered. You're what's, what's your, what's your, you know, what's your closure rate? What's this and that and the third. And so I just went and I ripped those chairs out and I brought him new chairs um, and so yeah you you want you ask somebody who mm-hmm. literally you can go into districts there's people that are that are wrapped in blankets because the windows don't close all the way during the winter. there's rats running around, there's bathrooms that don't work in the departments in the departments, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, like it's sad when I do police reform across the country and I walk into police departments, and I don't see like shingles missing and you know, all this kind of like, oh wow, you got a nice place here, you <laughs> right, know? Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, yeah, all of that is is difficult as a human being in any position, but certainly being a police officer, yeah, and we ask them to be officer friendly and right. uh, you know, yeah, you yeah. can imagine some of the <laughs> responses
1: right, to that. Right. <laughs> um, so I I do want to talk about um the uh the impact of the death of Freddie Gray on your initiative, mm-hmm. um, terrible timing. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So, what was uh, that impact? What changed, and and how did your role change?
2: Yeah. Um, so, uh, I I don't think it's you know, um, um, well, the the death of Freddie Gray ripped the city apart. I mean, literally. literally. I still remember the day we were in the watch center um and we'd prepared uh for all sorts of eventualities we knew people were coming from outside of the city um, that had been in other cities um probably intent to do uh damage um and things were winding down we were actually just kind of about to disperse and then all of a sudden it just went crazy um we were getting calls from Oriole Stadium, um people scared inside. Um we were, I mean just you could just uh, the calls were going crazy. You can hear yelling, you can hear screaming, all of these things. Um and um and um and so it ripped the city apart, but it also in the in a sense ripped a band-aid off of something cuz everything wasn't okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm.
2: There was there was major problems. But that made things raw and it made it um also made it opportunistic for people to yeah. right to 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 capitalize on those divides, um and uh which made things worse. Um and then it just brought a lot of things to the forefront. People looked at Freddie Gray's life, like where he lived, where he grew up. Um, you know, what were things that could have been done, you know, beforehand. Um, you know, our prosecutor um, you know, became a national figure by mm-hmm. prosecuting police officers for murder. Um, that was a, a big deal um in the police department, um, which some argue caused caused de Um, and we've had record homicide rates ever since. Um so you you had a lot going on. You had people wanting to come together and have conversations about what we could do. Um, but a lot of people who were just fed up and saying, you know, eff mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're 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 tired of we're tired of all this. We need some major major change. Mm-hmm. So
1: is de policing police leaving?
2: Depolicing policing or police um uh, have you ever heard of like a, a the blue cold or the cold Mm-mm. blue cold, blue flu? So it's police officers who are not engaging. Uh, they might just oh, sit in their cars. Oh yeah, or, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Right, right. But they'll see a maybe a drug deal going on right in front of them and not necessarily do anything about it because they're like, I'm not getting arrested and yeah. and going to jail. Um,
1: you know, for for doing
2: my job. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. So then how did the uh, your initiative uh change?
2: So it just intensified. So one of the things that I did was I started walked, wor- working with the Baltimore Community Mediation Center which all these years later I've just become the <laughs> uh, the chair of their board. Mm. Um and hadn't heard of them before um that time but um we started meeting um every week um police and community um, for about two hours. Um, and it started out very, um, cordial. People were trying to be cordial, (laughs) but I remember one day I got a call and I walked out and I walked back in and the energy had changed. Mm. And, um, this guy starts yelling at me, you ain't got no power. You ain't got no power. You ain't, y'all ain't going to do nothing to change. And, um, I remember sitting there and, um, I, I a tear started rolling down my eye, um, and uh, he comes up up to me afterwards, and he goes, "Man, I didn't I didn't even know you cared." And I said, "More than you know." And uh, it, it, from that point forward, the group really kind of coalesced in a different way. Um, and it's funny, that same guy just he's he's a community guy. He called me like two weeks ago asking me a question about something, and we get off the phone now saying, I love you. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, you know, but one of the things that was beautiful about that time was um the police officers that were there, they were patrolling in the same area that Freddie Gray uh was born and raised and lost his life. And there was a day that they came, he came, they came up uh, on some young people and they said to the young people, you know, they, they called up Marvin. That's the guy's name. They called up Marvin. They're like, Marvin, cause he has a youth program. We don't want to arrest these kids. Can we bring them to you? He's like, yeah. So when they kind of talked about that in front of the whole group, the group was like, man, can we, can we make this a program? Mm-hmm. Like, can we make this a diversion program? So we really worked hard to, 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 to get that up and going. Um, and, um, so I would just say that the the efforts just really intensified. I had to be in the community. We had to be very intentional about how to um, really start building relationships between the the, the,
1: the community and the police. How did, what were some of the steps that you took to get those people in the room?
2: Um, <sighs> it depends. So there was a lot of people who wanted to be in the room um and wanted to have this conversation um but um there were some police who were worried um about just kind of getting beat up on mm-hmm. um and just not even knowing the right thing to say um so i would do a lot of pre-work i would talk to the officers before they come in there i would talk to the community try to get them kind of on an equal playing field um but there were times where the community was like nope i don't want to talk to them um also um there were times where the community um if if they would come and meet with me at the police department, they would come in the back door mm-hmm. um there was one 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 situation that was really eye opening to me there was a a man who came to meet with me um and you know he said he needed to use the bathroom and I said uh sure, sure, go ahead and he goes no chief you you need to go with me." Uh, not in the stall, but outside, he was scared to be by himself in the police department. Mm-hmm. And so it was just things like that that really stuck with me, having not grown up uh, there, um, that, man, this was visceral, um, The uh, both on the police and the community side. So um, just really showing up. Um, there was one time where I brought community in to talk about the use of force policy, which is very sensitive, um, and they came in pissed at the police. Oh, they do this. They do this. They curb our young men, which means put them on the curb and make them cross their legs. And they don't, they, whether it's snowing, cold, whatever it is. And so I asked the police, I said, why do y'all do that? And they said, well, ma'am, you know, we don't have um, the, um, the the dividers in the back of the car, um, the cages that would keep people from jumping over, the, you know, the car, jumping over um, the the seed or stuff like that and so when I told the community that they then wrote a letter to the commissioner and said buy them that equipment so they came in pissed about something but once they were educated mm-hmm. about why it was happening then they became part of the solution mm-hmm. so I just always did stuff like that and nine times out of ten there were some people that I eventually realized for their own PR purposes could never agree Mm-hmm. Whether it was the union right, or whether it was an activist, forget about it, and I'm like, okay, that's fine y'all go y'all go out be on the periphery or whatever, but everybody who really wants to make a, a difference, like there's a seat at the table let's let's talk about it
1: mm-hmm. and so how long uh were you leading that uh department
2: probably five or six months because um. The police commissioner at the time was um, fired, and a new police commissioner came in. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, uh, President Obama's DOJ under Loretta Lynch had in- initiated a patterns of practice investigation into the police department. And that new police chief asked me to create a new um, bureau uh, the the Bureau of DOJ Compliance, Accountability, and External Affairs so the work that i was doing kind of was subsumed into that work Mm -hmm. because you know it's part of the consent decree process um but i then had to set um my sights on creating a completely new um another completely new bureau at the police department
1: so um so that's a great transition into uh questions that i have around the consent decree it's a good transition.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, good. <laughs> um, so, so I think the consent decree is interesting because I don't believe a lot of the general public really knows what a consent decree is. Um, yeah, that's and- true. Uh, and even for myself before coming here to the museum, I didn't know what a consent decree mm-hmm. uh, was or what impact that has, uh, or anything about it really mm-hmm. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what, why those two words go together. Yeah. You know? <laughs> this is
2: true. I will tell you, and this was a kind of a joke sometimes in Baltimore, somebody would say, Tell me about that dissent decree. Right. And then and then people are like, Yeah, it's the dissent is not a consent, it's a dissent right. decree. Yeah, yeah. So
1: um so walk us through, educate us a little bit on around a consent decree.
2: Yeah. So essentially what happens is um a um there's an allegation made by community, um, or there's a very um prominent um incident that happened. So Ferguson, Breonna Taylor in Louisville. um, There's one, there's an investigation right now in Phoenix. Um, So um, Baltimore had been being looked at anyway. Mm -hmm. And the Freddie Gray um, incident really was the straw that broke the camel's back. So um, something with your police department happens. um, And the DOJ, um, under federal law, has the uh, jurisdiction and ability to come in and do what's called a patterns or practice uh, investigation. And during that investigation, um, they will ask for ride-alongs with the police department. They will ask for all of your policies. They will ask you to figure out how to um, dump entire databases. In Baltimore City, there's a lot of stuff that are like our stops were not even in a database. They paid somebody to enter it into the database and mm-hmm. then get it um so um, they interview people in the community, they hold town halls, they interview people in the police department. And so um, that can take anywhere from a year to 18 months. Um, once they do that, um, they come out with a findings report. The findings report is generally very damning. Um, it, it, it just it, it, It's just damning. <laughs> Nobody, usually the police department is very unhappy mm-hmm. um, with the findings. Um, But that is what the um, Department of Justice Civil Rights Division uses to say we have found indeed a pattern of practice of unconstitutional policing by your police department. And you have two choices here. You can sit down at the table with us and negotiate a remedy Mm -hmm. of what you're going to do to fix this or we can go to court and we can Mm -hmm. litigate. There have been police departments who fought. We were very clear we were not fighting. We needed a mm-hmm. consent decree. Um, and so we sat down at the table and negotiated. Um, the negotiations weren't always... We didn't always see eye to eye, but we sat down and we negotiated. And so um, the the topics um, for... A consent decree can range. So in Baltimore, it went what I call the Ruta to the Tudor. That may be my Texas, <laughs> but it was recruitment and retention. It was the academy. It was how we engage with youth. Um, it was how we um, dealt with people in mental and behavioral health crisis. It was our technology. Um, it, it literally touched, it was how we did our sexual assault investigations. Um, it literally was everything. I think the consent decree ended up being 300 some odd pages. And so then once you either agree to the, to, to the, um, document and you say, okay, this is what we'll do to fix it. That document is the consent decree. It's that actual agreement that you that the police department will oh, fix will it.
1: fix something the department is consenting to right. those changes to those changes got it
2: then um because this is a federal process there is a federal judge that is overseeing um this the patterns and practice and the consent decree agreement And then you have to go out and hire a monitoring team, which there's controversy around that if you want to talk about it. But you go out and you hire a monitoring team, which is a lot of subject matter experts, previous police chiefs, those sorts of things. And so really what you have once you enter into the consent decree process, which can be anywhere from five years and beyond, is you have a federal judge who will eventually determine whether you have become come into compliance with all of the things you promised to do to get out of the consent decree. You have a, a monitoring team who's supposed to be there to help you um, and give you technical assistance and support. And report back to the judge, yes, we believe that they've done what they're supposed to do, or no, they haven't. And then you have the DOJ that still remains there. A team is assigned to each city. And they um, also judge um, whether they believe that the police department is making efforts to come into compliance. Um, And then eventually you come to a point in a consent decree where you you, you go to the judge and say, judge, we've done everything. We would like to, um, enter into, um, the time of, um, monitoring, um, which I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but, um, it's something compliance. I'm forgetting it. But anyway, you then have to prove for two years, you can a year or two Mm -hmm. years that you can hold all those things that you put in place, which is very difficult. Um, and then you can then eventually ask to be released from your consent decree, um and and you can get out um there are folks that have done that. I wanna say Oakland might be in like its twenty fifth year of a consent <sighs>
1: decree um so um, I was gonna ask what the sounds like with the investigation and then the letter then implementing all the changes, which depending on the changes sounds like. It could take quite a while, especially if you're underfunded, you don't have resources, you haven't yep. had the support. Yep. Um, and then to then be on, you know, two year monitoring. Sounds yeah. like a
2: long time. It is a long time. And I'll tell you, like in, in Baltimore, eighth largest police department, you know, um, the violence that we were having when we started our consent decree, we were still handwritten. There were not computers and cars and people had computers and cars since the 80s mm. so one of the first things i fought for was to get computers and cars because if you don't have the technology to actually prove that you're doing what you're saying you're doing you're not going to get out of the consent decree um
1: right so, yeah 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 how do you want me to get out of this if i don't have the resources to to implement yeah,
2: yeah. which is how a lot of police departments end up in a consent decree anyway because you just, you're, you're doing the work, you're, you're under resourced. you're understaffed. People start sh- cutting corners, Um, you know, uh, right. not doing training the way you need to not having the best training. And you, it's like, you know, you fall into disrepair. You're not doing things well. You're not tracking things well. You're not holding people accountable the way you need to. And then, hmm. you know, something bad happens. Um, And, and generally if the, um if the DOJ comes for you they usually already know they have a, enough information to 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 probably get you mm-hmm. um in a consent decree mm-hmm.
1: yeah um so i have a lot of questions about your role and and your experience uh in that uh in that consent decree mm-hmm. um one as a civilian You know what was that experience like for you uh and i guess actually uh i should ask first what was your role within that
2: Mm -hmm. so um as the as the chief um of that bureau um i had a couple of different roles one was i was the liaison to the department of justice Mm -hmm. i was the liaison to the mayor's office i was the representative for the police commissioner um, in that work Um, i was a liaison to the community um, and I was a liaison to the police um just about all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um One of the things that was uh, important to me um was uh, it was already difficult to work in Baltimore City as a police officer just for all the reasons that we talked about, mm-hmm. and the violence being you know as 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 rampant as it was and so. I kind of got in my basketball mind of like, I'm going to run drills. So Mm. how can I like set the police department up so that they know what's coming so that by the time it comes, they're not like in total shock. Mm. And by the time we're about to be judged by the monitoring team and the judge. So I looked at consent decrees across the country. So there had already been consent decrees in new Orleans, Seattle, um, and LA. And uh, at the time the cops office was also doing something called collaborative reform, which they just brought back. It was called Consent Decree Light, which essentially meant they would do kind of the consent decree process. They would send um, consultants in. They would look at all your systems. They would tell you a report that you needed to fix things. But it, you weren't in trouble like you weren't it wasn't. It wasn't the Civil Rights Division filing a lawsuit on you. Mm-hmm. um. So they were already there in Baltimore before the DOJ civil rights came in to investigate us. So they, they paid for me to go around the country. Mm-hmm. And so I saw what Seattle was doing. Um, I knew we didn't have as much money as Seattle, so I probably couldn't be as fancy as them. Then I saw New Orleans and I said, OK, that's a little bit more like Baltimore. Mm-hmm. I could take some things from there. I went to LA. They had the great technology, all these things. So I took all those pieces and I came back and I had to come up with a plan. And so I, I started to say, OK, um, I need civilians um, because we're going to have um, our uh, sworn folks still having to do all the other things that they needed to. Um, we need some civilians who know how to do Excel spreadsheets and, you know, all these right. sorts of things to help them show compliance and. Um, so i had to put that together I had to then go lobby the mayor and her chief of staff uh, to fund um, that and matter of fact this piece that i'm talking about right now is around the time that of uh, in we on the city hmm. where where, where hmm. the chief is sitting around the table and having to talk to the mayor hmm. and talk to, to her chief of staff but anyway so um i had to come up with the structure for that bureau i had to um ask them for the money I also had to start building the, I had to start lobbying for, we're going to need a lot of money for technology. Mm -hmm. We've got to get this technology right. So I started talking to the governor's office on uh, crime crime control and prevention um, and started talking to foundations about we are going to have to be able to fund um, our CIT and our co-responder model. Um, for people in mental and behavioral health crisis. So I just started, I just took everything in that consent decree and I started planning. Mm -hmm. I started hiring people. We started moving people around, trying to fix our academy, um, creating all these things. So my goal was to try to get a lot of stuff going um, before um, the DOJ and the monitor came. And then educating, like to your point earlier, A lot of people had no idea what the consent decree was, still don't know what the consent Mm -hmm. decree is. Um, So I was trying to get out and educate the community and figure out ways to get them involved. Uh, Eventually with consent decrees, every policy that the police department um, writes, you have to put out for public um, Mm -hmm. feedback for Mm -hmm. at least 30 days. Um, So making sure the community was aware that they could, you know, have a voice in policy, um, all those sorts of things um, interviewing and helping to get a monitoring team. Um, so really I was kind of like, I guess I would say the spoke in the wheel
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, for just making sure that we
1: moved the work forward. So it was uh, my question I had about uh, how you prepared for, uh, you know, what to put into place. So you, you answered that by going around to other cities and looking at other, other models, but was there anything that you, um, in your experience or your education that prepared you for being in this position? Was there, I imagine there's a lot of learning on the job happening. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
2: Well, that was the, I think that was the thing that, that made it, um, um, helped me to be able to do my job well, um, was first of all, I looked at everybody as a human being uh, even the people who were mad at police and yelling and screaming, I I went and said, why? Right. So I had a rule that you could cuss me out the first time you met me. Like if that's what <laughs> if that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. Second or third time. I don't know. But like yeah. the first time, maybe. Um, And then I would, you know, listen to the police. A lot of times nobody listened, listened to them. And so I would go to the human and I'd say, OK, here's the here's the letter of the consent decree. This is the stuff we have to do. But what's the spirit of it? Like, what can I inject in here that's actually going to help the human beings in this process? And that's just kind of who I am naturally. The The other thing was, um, it, it's just a, it's a very, it's it, you have a very different view when you've worked inside the police department. Um, and I always put police in two different categories. There are ones that should never have the gun and badge. They tarnish the name and they should be under a jail, not in a jail. And then there are the majority who show up every day wanting to help um and trying to do, you know, the best that they can. So I think about those bad cops and what are the systems we can put in to get them out. But then on the those those officers that show up every day, I think about like how difficult it is to first of all show up and your vehicle doesn't work <laughs> or, you know, the muffler's hanging. Or you you have to write down or share a computer. Like I just start thinking about how hard it is, you know, to do your job. And I was able to see that as the chief of staff, as the legislative affairs person. Um, and so I, I took the consent decree and then tried to build things in there that would actually help them be able to do their job well. And in my opinion, if, if they're doing their job well and the community sees and knows that, then that's gonna automatically start building the relationship. So having worked in the police department and actually having been over at the mayor's office, it's Mm -hmm. two different beasts. So understanding kind of the mentality of City Hall um, Mm -hmm. and the mentality of police departments, it it, it helped me and actually working with the community, being there, talking to the community. Like I could sit at my desk and probably have a conversation with all three of those entities in my head Mm -hmm. and then come up with something like, okay, you all. I thought about all of you all in this, like this let, let's now think about how to move this forward and coalition build. So all of those experiences, um, I go back to what I told you earlier too about hating bullies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Um, and then to a very small degree being a lawyer mm-hmm. helped um because I just understood kind of a litigation process. Um, but yeah, all that all that coming together uh helped me.
1: Yeah. Is there a person in your role in the other cities that have had consent decree, or was that a unique, uh, idea? So the way that
2: I built it was the first time that it had been built that way. Um, there were, um, other iterations where you might have like a deputy commissioner who had the compliance unit underneath it. I, um, reported directly to the police commissioner, um, And it's it's interesting you ask that question because Baltimore was the last consent decree um, under uh, President Obama. Um, And um, when Trump took office, uh, him and Sessions did not believe in consent decrees. And so for four years, there were no consent decrees. And so um, when. Um, the DOJ under Biden started filing um, doing pattern and practice investigations again, a lot of people started calling me and asking me about what I did four years before, mm-hmm. because there was nobody in the interim. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it's becoming um, a practice. I think Albuquerque does it. I know that L- Louisville has a uh, set one up. Um, I just talked to Phoenix not too long ago, so they'll probably do something similar. Um, Because one of the things that was always an issue and in in police departments a lot, quite frankly, is some issue comes up and then you throw police at it. Go fix it. Mm -hmm. Whether they have training, whether they have the assets, the money, you know, all that sort of stuff.
1: Um, So but it's it's but it's becoming more popular now. So uh, so what you're describing are the states creating their own consent decrees?
2: yeah so a couple of things have happened uh in the interim um so um I'll give an example so um chicago so chicago um was being investigated um under the Obama administration and then when the Trump administration came in um they stopped the investigation. well, the people of Chicago didn't want it to just go away, so they're a g Right. Right, took over that um consent decree process. Um recently, I think um the state uh Colorado um you know put Aurora under a consent decree. Mm-hmm. Um and then in um um there's another one, I think. Uh and another thing that was happening is a. um a project I'm working on in Milwaukee I'm now it's now in its fifth year um the ACLU mm-hmm. um with um, a couple of plaintiffs sued the police department and um so there's a judge um I'm on the monitoring team if you will it's not exactly a monitoring team because it's not a consent decree but still the the team that oversees it who says they're going to be in compliance yeah. So so I so there there are a couple of different ways that people started going after police departments mm-hmm. um, when you didn't have the pattern of practice investigation.
1: Mm-hmm. And those uh, AG offices are were they prepared for that? I mean, was that, uh, you know, were they like, oh, you want us to do this? You know, where usually I, uh, they handle that.
2: Yeah, know? I think I don't think they were prepared for it, but I think a couple of them said, OK, well, yeah, we're the we're the logical people mm-hmm. to do this. Um and, and I do think there were some bumps in the road because um DOJ Civil Rights just has been doing this forever. Mm-hmm. Um and the AGs were new to it. Um but uh you know the, yeah they stepped up and and um and took the helm.
1: So I'm curious if within some departments if they don't have if if uh they don't have the resources the technology or the support which ultimately leads to some of these incidents on, on some level is the consent decree. And do they see it in some ways as an opportunity to get those things?
2: Not initially Mm -hmm. Um, initially, um, particularly rank and file in the unions are against consent decrees. Mm -hmm. Um, There are um, folks who say, um, you you know, it ties the officers' hands behind their back, they can't really fight crime, um, you know, all these different things. Um, so I think it it depends on how you leverage it. I leverage the heck out of it, right? So I went to Under Armour, I went mm. to um the state, I went to um we ended up with a million dollars from the Ford Foundation. Um, so you know I did not sit there, and the commissioner, uh, Commissioner Davis, um, was very clear. I mean, I took him on a horse and pony show. Like, mm-hmm. I-, I had him sitting in front of nonprofit executives and asking for money. So, for me, it was it was intentional that the first thing that came out of our consent decree was something for the rank and file. I wanted them to see, like, yeah, mm, you sure. could use it. So, that's why I got them the computers and cars. Mm-hmm. If the first thing was, like, a use of force policy— or a change, which caused a lot of controversy, like a lot of the use of force policies change where just unholstering your gun
1: mm-hmm.
2: was a use of force.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, You know, so people went bananas about that, um, because if you get all these uses of force, right, then they it could it could end up being negative towards you. So, um, you know, I think the smart cities leverage. Um, leverage the consent decree to get them what they've always wanted in our particular case too, the judge called the mayor over and said, look, I want you to know um, if um, you need a Cadillac to come into compliance with the consent decree, you can't go to the lot and buy a Pinto, right? (laughs) This was literally what he said. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I told the, I told him, I said, y'all, it's, it's the time to get us a Cadillac, mm-hmm. you know, like how mm-hmm. can we leverage this? Um, and it, 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 it is, exp- it does become very expensive. It is expensive to do business the right way sure. to have policy writers with background, to have appropriate um, staff who know how to teach um, scenario-based training and adult-based learning and, you know, all of these and new technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, If all of our police departments were able to operate in an optimal way, we'd be in a much better place. Yeah.
1: Well, Baltimore is a beautiful place and they deserve all those things. I agree.
2: Especially, you know, I always say and not that our jobs are not important, but the worst thing we're going to do is like have a bad PowerPoint. I come in here and sound completely stupid on Mm -hmm. a podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, we are not put on a vest you know, and running towards bullets. Right. Um, And even even these days uh, where police officers are becoming targets of, you know, um, of attacks. And I'm sure, you know, as you know, we've had a record uh, number of suicides Mm -hmm. um, with police officers. So it's 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 a it's a hard job, Uh, much like we saw with our, you know, health care workers. You're doing all this stuff. And um, you deserve to be taken care of. Yeah, we should we should do better as a society, I have to say.
1: Yeah. How's uh, um, how have things changed there as a result of their consent decree?
2: Um, so I, I think that, you know, a lot of the policies are um, top notch. Um, a lot of people use them as um, as, um, um, uh, you know, uh, best practices, the the um, training. Um, is much better. Um, I think uses of force are down. Um, uh, One of the things that I implemented when I was there, and I I hear it's still there, is even when you... um, I had a unit that looked at every use of force. Uh, And for a while, you don't get in trouble for uh, not documenting everything correctly. You, You get talked to, you get taught how to fix it, Okay. Five or six times. Okay. You should know better. Mm -hmm. And now you need to be, to be brought up, but, um, instituting because in a paramilitary organization, it's usually do what I say and shut up. Mm -hmm. And it, that generally had been done because in a scenario where it's an emergency, Mm -hmm. you don't need your subordinate going back and forth with you. Mm -hmm. But I think that's part of the problem in the police department. When you, when, when people don't have a voice, then they become disgruntled and then who does it getting taken out of uh, Mm -hmm. taken out on right. Mm -hmm. The, 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 um, the community. So, um, you know, um, I think they're, um, um, one of the women that I, um, mentored back in the day is the one that was running the community, um, you know, affairs bureau. So Mm. a lot of, a lot of best practices, um, they got cameras in the back of their wagons, um mm-hmm. which is where Freddie Gray died, and no there was you know no no footage um so a lot of good things, but they still have a very long way to go,
1: mm-hmm. yeah um, I wanna change gears and talk about thirty by thirty, okay. Uh, you're involved uh, with that initiative, and I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that.
2: Absolutely. Um, So 30 by 30 is an initiative that um, started out of the NYU Policing Project. Uh, The aim is to have uh, 30% of academy classes with 30% of women by 2030. Um, For um, over the past 20, 25 years, um, it's hovered at about 12% of women in policing and less than 1% in leadership. Um, and so uh, Mo McGough and Yvonne Roman, who were the uh, co-founders, um, came together and and said, you know, let's figure out a way to intentionally bring more women. And, and it was really interesting, this was hap- the time it was happening because the statistics show that women uh, shoot less, um, they use less excessive force, they problem solve more, so this is what the community was asking for. So if this is what the community is asking for, why don't we, you know, have, have more women? Um, and so um, I think we have about 200 agencies um, that have signed on. Um, a lot of law enforcement, um, the marshals, I want to say the FBI, mm. uh, CIA maybe. Um, and so um, a lot of of good momentum. We just finished a... Uh, listening session across the country. We did Baltimore County. We did, um, uh, uh Texas, um, Philadelphia and Colorado, mm-hmm. um, hearing just from women across the country on their different issues and, and how we can make things, uh, better for them.
1: What do you think, uh, if 30 by 30 had started 30 years ago, Uh huh. what would policing look like now? Well, you know, um,
2: if it was successful, because I'll tell you, there were women that we tried to get involved in um, the 30 by 30 movement um, that were hesitant because they're like, Psh, we've done that. We've tried. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to fund us. Nobody would, you know. And so sometimes timing is everything. Um, and I will say um, the the new Bureau of Justice Assistance Director Carlton Moore mm-hmm. has um, has grabbed um this initiative. He had a two day convening of uh, folks across DOJ. Mm-hmm. Um Merrick Garland came, um Vanita Gupta came, all the big dogs came, um and he's he's um supporting the the salary of um of uh Mo to move this thing forward. And so um mm-hmm. timing is everything. Uh, so but I would say if um, if this had started 30 years ago and it had the momentum and people were able to stay focused and and get the support that they needed, um, then th- what they say is 30 percent is the tipping point of culture. Mm-hmm. So as long as we had the right women, because I don't want to act like, you know, just because you're a woman, mm-hmm. you, that means you're just going to be this great cop, <laughs> you know. Um, but if we got the if we got quality women in the door. Um, And they were put in positions to affect and influence culture. I do think um, that we would be in a place where we'd have more trust um, Mm -hmm. with our community um, and probably um, less excessive force. Mm
1: -hmm. So last time uh, when we spoke, you said when people are angry, they show up. So what was the experience that that inspired that? Um, Yeah, so uh,
2: that kind of goes back to the consent decree um, where um, we were very focused on um, creating an environment where the community could show up and be heard um, and be a part of the change. And one of the things that happens, there's a phrase, I can't remember what it is, but there's a phrase um, kind of like just this kind of, I don't know, lethargy or exhaustion, but once the once the piss offedness dies down, <laughs> quote <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. There's like there's the, another one. There I'm gonna go. add that to the list. <laughs> Did we talk about that one in the New York Times? <laughs> <laughs> uh uh-uh, no. Oh, we might not. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe when we get off line okay. here. No. <laughs> but um, but so like you know, there's 200 people in a protest, and then two people show up right. to 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 work to get the policy change and. I don't begrudge folks necessarily for that because um, it's generally marginalized communities that we want to show up. But these are also folks who don't have appropriate transportation, who don't have childcare, who right. have all these different jobs. Right. And and sometimes they're just like, I'm tired of y'all like asking us to do work for free. Uh, fix it. Y'all know the problems. Mm-hmm. Um but then it becomes also an issue because then you're creating policy and you're creating all these things without those critical mm-hmm. voices at the table so um so yeah, uh, when people are pissed, you know they're they're showing up to let you know that, um, but we've got to figure out a way to sustain that engagement so that we can come up with sustainable change,
1: yeah, and that's sort of what i was um I was thinking when I was asking you what the process was after the death of Freddie Gray to bring those people, you know, Mm -hmm. and then in that, in that time, you know, getting them to sustain that participation and to, you know, have that buy-in is challenging.
2: It is. And I'll even tell you that um, the uh, diversion program that I mentioned um, that was started um, with the police community conversation uh, when I was no longer there, it went to the wayside, mm-hmm. and then most recently, it's gotten picked back up um, to continue it and to try to bring it to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's always an issue. The other thing that's an issue with sustainability is the political whims, mm-hmm. right? Right. You could be hot and heavy on something. That's one of the reasons why a consent decree is good because you've got to keep doing it no matter who the mayor is. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some mayors that go full gusto and then there's some that that don't so
1: yeah and I imagine likewise uh with uh change in uh political priorities you know leadership changes as well and um and it's really incumbent on them to keep people in those positions because when you lose that momentum it's very hard to pick back up
2: it is and i'll tell you i mean one of the things that happened after commissioner uh davis um was um was let go was the person that was put in there was like you know a friend and a a a darling to Mm. some of the some of the political folks and then that person was indicted um you know four months later uh and so you know. I think we've just got to be much more thoughtful sometimes about who we who we put in those roles and who we keep uh, in those roles. Uh, And, you know, that's also a huge part of the problem with policing right now is I call police the political football. So take New York as an example. You had people pissed off people showing up saying defund the police, abolish the police. And then violence starts going up Mm -hmm. and then they literally. Uh, elect a, a police uh, mm-hmm. officer mm-hmm. uh you know to be their mayor mm-hmm. uh and and so what happens inside police departments is you know you get a call i right i've been there with the commissioner uh blah 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 do this do this okay yes yes ma'am yes sir okay boom uh 2 weeks later wait don't do that do this blah 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 and what do you think that feels like and looks like to the the rank and file right. like you know, first of all, you tell us to have integrity, and you tell us to to act a certain way, but we know that you're changing our orders based upon political whims. You know, um, and what's the police commissioner supposed to do? Right. The mayor's their boss, mm-hmm. and so wh- right now that's really happening. We just come out of George Floyd, and everybody's like reform, reform, and now. You know, people are saying more police, more police because of violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the 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 public plays a lot bigger role Mm -hmm. in what happens with policing than anybody really ever wants to talk about. Mm
1: -hmm. It would be good for them to know. I mean, I guess that's very true and i wonder how uh we get them more engaged so that their calls for change are more constructive um, and come from a more educated place so one thing that's come up it's
2: a bit i guess controversial this pushback is pay the community to show up Right, because everybody else that's in the room is paid. If I'm working for the city, I'm paid for my time. If I'm a consultant, I'm paid for my Mm, time. Interesting. So, Right, so pay the community to show up. Um, Give them an incentive to show up. Some people are like, a better community is their incentive. Yeah, if they actually saw that change. Mm. Many communities have said, y'all call us together over and over and over again, and nothing changes. So why am I gonna keep wasting my time? either give them something concrete and action, let them see that when they show up, there's a change made in their community, pay them that way or pay them to show up. Um, Something else that's really, really going big right now, uh, Biden, I think, you know, just put 250 250 million, wanted to put 50 billion into CVI. So community violence intervention. And, you know, this is a um, program whereby you pay, and employ um, a a living wage and with benefits so people who have lived the life some have even been incarcerated and you pay them as a part of the public safety structure Mm. to actually help reduce violence you know um, you know reduce beefs and stuff like that Mm. so Um, uh, The other kind of piece of that also is this reimagining public safety. So let's pay social workers. Let's pay people who um, are clinicians to respond to mental and behavioral health crisis calls instead of police. So there's these conversations right now about how do you use civilians or other people to take on um, some of the police jobs. Um, And so you know, that that's one way. Um, that's one way that people are kind of looking or a couple of mm-hmm. ways that people are looking at it.
1: Um, before we close, I wanted to talk about uh, going back to we own the city. Um, so did you contribute to the the gun trace task force uh, case in, in some way or uh, familiar with it? Um, and then how were you? Uh, how did the author of the book know about your role, were you all connected in some way as well?
2: So I'd love to take um, an outsized amount of credit uh, for taking down the GTTF, but um, all I can really say is that I was there uh, during the time. Um, the GTTF have been operating in Baltimore Police Department for a while under different names. Mm. Um, and if if you'll allow me to kind of uh, editorialize here, Part of the issue when you in a city and in a police department, all you focus on is murder and we should focus on people who lose their life like that. That should be priority one. But when you say everybody is judged by the murder, the mayor is judged by the murder rate, the commissioner is judged by the murder rate. Then you start allowing people to cut corners. So the GTTF will be the ones that bring in guns, put meat on the table is what we would say, Mm -hmm. but nobody is asking them exactly how even though you would hear rumors, uh, about. So, um, so, so Commissioner Davis, um, was the one who cooperated with the FBI, um, to actually bring them down. And, and one of my, uh, one of my favorite scenes, um, which I actually lived in real life was when, um, the commissioner, I came to his office and, and we were talking and he was like, you know, I'll be back. I'm, I'm gonna, he knew that the FBI was about to 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 arrest them, and he says, "I'm gonna go stare those mfers in the face." um And so he he went down there and he wanted to look him in the face and say, "Yeah, we took you down. We we got you out of here." Mm-hmm. um So I, I can't take too much credit, but you know th- that 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 was that was part of it and part of the reforms that we were that we were working on to a to a small degree. Mm-hmm. um And then I forgot your second part of your question.
1: Uh- how the author was dialed in, oh, right? Because so, your name was in the script yeah, for the show. Yeah. You know? Well,
2: and it's funny too. I I I only, I knew that because somebody had asked me to try out for some other show. Um, and when the woman got on the call, she goes, I cast you for a show. I was like, what do you mean you cast me for a show? She's like, this, this show, We Own the City, we were trying to find you. And we couldn't find you. And so they had to cast somebody. Yeah, they had to cast somebody else. A lot of my friends are mad that the woman doesn't look like me, but <laughs> um, but so Justin Fenton is mm-hmm. the author of the book. So Justin Fenton is um, how do you describe him? I mean, he's just everywhere. He he lives and breathes um homicide, mm-hmm. police, Baltimore mm-hmm. police. He was the Baltimore son um police beat Mm. cop i mean reporter now he's over at this new place um that broke off from the sun the banner um Mm -hmm. but i mean every time you turn around fenton was going to be in Mm -hmm. your face asking you questions um he had sources out of the wazoo Mm -hmm. um and so uh this was just like you know his thing and you know i i talked to justin um because of my role at the police department, but Mm -hmm. he, you know, he was, he was talking to everybody. So, um, yeah, probably, I mean, and it was also very well known that I was the lead on the consent decree. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's probably how all that, yeah, all that, that drama went down.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. So for those who don't know, we own the city is created by the same group who did the wire. David Simon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, it's an excellent show. And I I feel like there's been more shows about Baltimore.
2: I know.
1: Than any other city. I I know. Maybe New York, right? Well,
2: and I used to get really upset about it. Like, uh, give it a break. But I have to tell you, having lived it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like made for TV. Like literally, if I came and sat down and had dinner with you and I started telling you stuff, you'd be like, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Like this doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it, it so Yeah. And and also too, I don't wanna take anything away from David Simon. He's a good storyteller, cast, great people. Um I still haven't, though, after that first episode of The Wire that I told you I watched as deputy mayor. Mm-hmm. I've never watched the rest of you it. You haven't? Yes. I was about to say, and that's <laughs> the response oh gosh, I get from yeah. everybody. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so maybe maybe one day. Yeah, one day. You yeah. have to go on that journey. Yes, it's I'll good, go on that yeah, journey. It's good. Yeah. Have you
1: seen The Corner? Mm-mm. That was another one. Well, that was before The Wire.
2: And there's another one. Oh, gosh. Something like Homicide.
1: Oh yeah, life on the streets. Life on yeah, the street, yeah, sure. yeah. Yes, I mean yeah. the only. I had that book on tape. Did you? Oh I did. yeah, I
2: love it. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love
2: it. This is why you were made for your job. That's right. Well, I, I, the only part I had to deal with that was as a chief of staff. There was a fight. So apparently there was a, um, there was a sign on the there was a building that's now the the Pendry Hotel.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Yes, yeah. I love the Pendry. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it.
2: And so, um. But but I guess that was a building that was in mm-hmm. that show. That used, yeah. And there was a sign that somebody wanted and it and I had to call the person that had it. And like I had to try to negotiate this whole big old thing about this sign. Mm-hmm. So, the other thing I love my job, I mean, <laughs> you just never <laughs> right. you never knew yeah. like what was going to happen from yeah. from day to day to day to day. I literally had to get used to not being texted. Right. Where'd like everybody every go? Minute. Yeah, every minute. Yeah. Every minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about Mark 43. Okay. Also, and your role there. Okay. Um, talk a little bit about that. How did you come into Mark 43? Uh, you know, what are those folks up to?
2: Yeah. So it's really interesting. Remember when I told you I went around the country to see what folks had done right and mm-hmm. not right for the consent decree? Um, I went to Seattle. Uh, from one of the places and Seattle uh kathy O'Toole, an amazing mm-hmm. amazing chief, she was mm-hmm. the first female chief in Boston she was in Seattle. she was um uh she led the I- IRA, garda mm-hmm. um, right that's right yeah, I mean she's yeah. done like a little i just found out she was the um superintendent of the state police of Massachusetts. I was like, what have you not secretary of of uh public safety and in... yep. she's done everything, but um anyway, so we've become really good friends, but while I was there. Um, she was just bragging about this t- Mark 43, Mark 43. Uh, she was so excited about it. And so it was three guys out of Harvard. Um, they had a business, um, class and Harvard. They got in Harvard. Uh-huh. I, another Harvard yeah. <laughs> 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 so, um, they, um, um, were in a business class and the professor says you have to help a real like client. Um, and so they ended up he- helping the Massachusetts State Police and they thought they were going to go in there and do all this cool CSI stuff. And, uh, you know, they were like, mm, it takes us forever to write our reports. And so they kind of went back to the drawing board. And so they decided to come up with the very first um, and still the only cloud native records management system. So everything in the cloud. Um, and then since then, they have built a CAD uh, in the cloud and. I don't you know I me mean, i'm not a technology person but i can tell you what the cloud means it's like you can literally go on your phone And you can, a 911 dispatch can do what they need from their phone for dispatch. You can, you know, your records management. So all of those issues we talked about earlier with technology, you can do it right from your phone. Um, And the other thing that's great about it is like, since it's cloud native, if Atlanta gets an upgrade to the system, then so does Boston, then so does um, Albuquerque. So one of the things that was painful for me at the police department is if I wanted an upgrade um, to an already crappy system, it would take years. It would Mm -hmm. take more money, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And so I got to know them well over the years. I followed them. And a couple of years ago, actually just right up the road, we were having um, dinner. And I said to them, I was like, you guys, you collect data for police departments i said do you know the one thing that community always asked me whether i was at a community meeting for police or for the mayor where's the data where's the information right Mm -hmm. and so i said we've got to figure out a way to use that data and to use your systems to help police and community communicate and build sustainable solutions and so they kind of pondered it and then right after george floyd they called me and said would you consult with us i said sure um, and, um, and then they eventually create a position VP of community affairs and public policy, um, where literally I work, um, every day with police and community to say, how can we work together, um, to, uh, build sustainable solutions. Um, and, and the funny thing about it too, is that the, the, the first company or the first department that gave Mark 43, their chance was Kathy Lanier right here in DC, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, lucky lucky them that she took you know that that risk on them um but but they built her records management system from the ground up um and and have been there since through Newsham and Conti um and so they just continue to to build out their product um and I just always want to make sure that what we're doing is helpful to the police um as they try to right? Serve um, Mm -hmm. the community. And the last thing I'll say is um, I've been happy that Mark 43 also, you know, um, asked me to figure out ways to support law enforcement in other ways. So they were um, their biggest donor to 30 by 30. um, Initially, Um, we we held, you know, an event here Mm -hmm. where we where we supported the 54th mile. And so really trying to figure out and get beyond kind of the sound bites and say, what can we do to actually help, um, you know, law enforcement and thereby the communities that they serve?
1: It's interesting uh, and a, a really good uh, illustration of when you think you know what a community of people needs hmm. and then when you engage them and you're like, oh, you need Help with record keeping, (laughs) you know, that that like never crossed our mind, and why? And why would it? Because you're not a part of that community, and so when you open up that dialogue and you learn about what they truly need, the difference that that can make than what some other person assumed.
2: It absolutely. It makes such a big difference because you give somebody what you think they need and then it doesn't help them. And then you're like, well, we gave you something great. Why haven't you done something different? And a perfect example is when I was uh, working on that diversion program. So we brought in some youth um, and uh, to talk to them about the program. And so I was, you know, the cop and playing the cop. And so I went up to them and I said, hey, you know, I could arrest you for what you're doing right now but I'm not going to, uh, you can do this diversion program. And so the first thing <laughs> the kid said to me is like, what the, <laughs> are you talking about a diversion program? Mm-hmm. And then the second thing they were like, was like, I would never get in a cop car in my community without you putting the handcuffs on me. Mm-hmm. Because if I got in there voluntarily, I could never come back. And so if we would have implemented that program, having never talked to the young people, we would have just called it a failure. Right. Because they would have always said no. Mm-hmm. It's counterintuitive mm-hmm. to say you have to arrest them and then take them down. And there you can talk to them about diversion, but mm-hmm. not out there in their community like they're cool with you.
1: Mm-hmm. So is that how it, how it happens, how you get them engaged?
2: Well, so they're still working on it right now. Yeah. Um, but hopefully they kept that nugget because, yeah. Yeah. you know, but that still makes it very complicated because guess what's going to happen? the community is going to see cops arresting young kids mm-hmm. and they're going to get pissed. right? And so Ooh. I know, right? Yeah. But this is part of why you've got to get in here and have these conversations and the relationships have to be on the ground. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. Super important. Yeah. Um, before we go, I wanted to ask if there was any particular quotes that you love or words of wisdom from from your experience. You know, again, thinking about um young people or young professionals who are entering in, into uh you know careers related to law enforcement i think you've had a a really um unique experience as a civilian being in really high ranking leadership roles within uh law enforcement within um uh city hall and working with mayors and so um so anything to uh to yeah. leave our listeners with
2: What comes to me is, if not me, who? If not now, when? Mm -hmm. Um, I think sometimes we feel like we've got to be, oh, this great thing. I had to go to Harvard. I didn't. Um, You know, and I've been in rooms with presidents. I've been, you know... uh, And, 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 you know, and, and with community and all these sorts of things. So, you know, one of the things, and even right now I keep asking myself, am I doing my highest and best good in policing? Like, what do I need to do? And sometimes you don't know, sometimes you just got to take a step. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes you feel like, oh, it's such a big problem. How do I solve it all? And if you just say, what is the role I can play? What can I do? You know? Um, all those little steps, if everybody does a little bit, then we you know, could come together for the greater good. So if not me, who? Mm-hmm. If not now, when?
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ganesha, for being here. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me. This has been amazing.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of Icons featuring Ganesha Martin and hosted by Thomas Canavan, the museum's executive director. We hope you found this conversation enlightening and will join us again for another edition of Icons, where we introduce listeners to incredible people working within the law enforcement community who have made a profound impact in our world. These one-on-one interviews provide insight into their lives and careers so we can better understand their challenges and recognize their bravery, commitment, and sacrifice. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to Precinct444 at NLEOMF.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 E Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Oh,